Thank you, choir. I've been blessed to hear Lynn and Deborah sing the last three days in a row now, I guess. Going back to Friday, Deborah Hall Williams led our front runners entertainment on Friday. I heard you hitting those high notes there. That was that was impressive. That was awesome. And Lynn, I had to I had to follow Lynn on Saturday at uh, Dot Richardson's service here, and I I was blubbery and, and emotional. It's hard to follow Lynn singing uh, "Come to Jesus." The, the choir sang last Sunday. She sang it as a solo piece, and uh, there wasn't a, a dry eye in the house. I think powerful music, powerful worship. I am excited about uh, the fun things that we get to do here as a church and Fall Fest tonight. I always look forward to seeing whatever the, the Rogers clan and the, uh, the Robbins clan, their, their outfits are, are normally, uh, you know, a themed family event. And uh, I heard that Ashlyn Grace was uh, saying, this year, Dad, we got we to gotta take it up a notch and, and, and really beat the Rogers this year. <laughs> and Morgan told me that, and I thought she said, Dad, this year we got to be the Rogers. And I was like, huh, I wonder what that would look like, you know, if, if Dennis would find some glasses, you know, and maybe Wendy get, I don't know, a briefcase or something, try to be an attorney. Like, unless, I don't know, but uh, I was thinking we could probably pull that off. We, you know, Isaiah could be Sco, their little puppy, you know, we could, we could totally be the Rogers. But uh, she said, no, beat the Rogers. I said, oh, okay, sorry, that, that would be silly. Never mind. <laughs> But come tonight at four, it'll be a lot of fun. Great opportunity. Uh, we're gonna invite our neighbors. I hope that you have thought of someone that you can invite, um, someone who needs a church family. Every day there's between, I've heard between 30,000 and 50,000 cars that drive by our church. I wonder how many of those thousands of people need a church family. How many of them are lost? How many of them are searching for truth, for hope, for meaning? All those things that we just read that Jesus says that he is that he embodies people can find the truth that they're longing for here in this family of faith at Woodmont Baptist Church so keep thinking about who you can reach out to today is a special day in the life of our church we get to come to the table figuratively and uh, enjoy communion with our Lord through the Lord's Supper we will follow the commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples to take and eat the bread and the cup and to do so uh, in remembrance of him. But before we get to the Lord's table, we're going to look at the rest of John chapter 18. My friend Dr. Rob Timms did an incredible job, I thought, last week of setting us up with the first 11 verses of this chapter, showing us how Jesus is betrayed in the garden by Judas and then all three groups both the Romans and the Jewish authorities and even Peter all tried to take matters into their own hands, yet the one who holds the world in his hands was still in control. We're reminded of the words that Jesus told his disciples back in John chapter 10. In John 10 verse 17, he said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. It's all part of the plan. No one takes it from me, he says, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So this morning we have a, a lot of ground to cover. It's a, a lengthy text, and I've, I've chosen this text because we're going to kind of skip over the Peter part, okay? I'm sorry. I know it's a really exciting part, but we're going to wait till November 24th to come back to John chapter 18 
and talk about Peter's denials. We're going to focus on verses 28 through 40 today. So we're going to read the whole text, and then we'll get to our main text in a minute. Just to give you a setup of where we are, we're calling this series Journey to the Cross. We're quickly approaching the end of the Gospel of John next month in November. All of you Sunday school teachers, small group leaders who've been following along with us, you need to prepare something for December. Come see me if you need help, because in December we're going to be talking about waiting on the promise, waiting for the promise of Jesus Christ. And on this journey, the, the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, we're walking with Jesus from the upper room across the Kidron Valley up to the Garden of Gethsemane, where we were last week. And today we're going to go to the, the house of Annas, the, the high priest, and then we're going to go to his son-in-law's house, Caiaphas, and then we're going to end up at the governor's palace on this journey to the cross at Pilate's palace to be tried. So let's stand now in honor of God's word as I read our text for today, John chapter 18, verses 18 to, to 40, verses 12 to 40. Hear now the word of the Lord. It's a long one. If, if you can hang in there and follow along, then you're doing great. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Remember that prophecy that Caiaphas gave. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. 
Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, sometimes what we see as reality is not reality. Sometimes things are not as they appear. What looks like defeat for Jesus over and over again throughout this narrative, the passion narrative as it's known, it looks bad. It looks like a defeat. It looks like Jesus is arrested and betrayed and therefore his journey is ended and he's ruined. But things are not as they always appear. Jesus is never out of control, is he? He's always sovereign. He always knows what he's doing. He always has a plan. A couple of years ago, our church uh, was able to take a medical mission trip. Several of you were on it to Guatemala City to serve in the Macedonia Baptist Church where Carlos's uncle, where's Carlos? I saw him, there he is. His, his T.O., uh, Uncle, what's his name, Miguel Angel? No, Gabriel. Gabriel is in Macedonia, right? Yeah, Gabriel. His dos tios. <laughs> My Spanish is incredible. <laughs> he has two uncles who have planted these churches in Guatemala City that we just happened to partner with through the, the Tennessee Baptist Convention. And we set up a medical mission trip there. It was great. On the last day, we were able to go do a little sightseeing, and we loaded up on a bus, and we went to the, the center of the city, and we saw the National Palace, and we saw uh, the, the National Cathedral, it was this beautiful area. My favorite part of that was Bobby and Dewey Dunn saying, oh, we haven't been here since the 50s. We were here in the 50s. On a, I was like, the 1950s? You were, that's, that's amazing. Uh, and when we got there, it was crowded, and it was crazy, and uh, we didn't know what was going on. There was a lot of noise being made, and at first we're like, oh, this is exciting, and then it was like, oh, this is kind of frightening. These people are angry. Uh, something is, is not right here. I took a video with my phone. Do we have that, Miles? You... Here we go. About a hundred guys on motorcycles came through, and then about 30 or 40 armored Chevy Suburbans. 
lots of noise. It was deafening. Helicopters flying overhead. We had no idea what was going on. We'd just literally gotten off the bus and walked right into this scene. And these people were not happy with whoever was coming through. And then we started seeing American flags on the vehicles and realizing, oh, they're upset with our country. That's, that's interesting. We're Americans here in the heart of Guatemala City. There's all the Suburbans pulling up in front of the National Palace. It was quite the display of power. I thought about how much each one of those armored Suburbans must cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and we had just been in, in very third world type of conditions. The house across the street from the church where we were holding the medical clinic had dirt floors and was, the walls were made out of corrugated metal that had rusted out and been welded together. And here we see this massive display of power, of strength, of wealth. It was clear that the United States was in town. It was Vice President Mike Pence had come to Guatemala City on a diplomatic visit, on an official state visit. And it was really striking how powerful it obviously and important this man was in this delegation. And it's true, we live in a powerful nation. We live in an incredible country that I'm so grateful to have been born in by God's grace in this country. It's a beautiful country and we are very affluent. I heard one stat that we've won the lottery worldwide statistically by being born in the United States. I'm very grateful to those who serve and protect it, like Cam Parker, who serves in the Army, is stationed right now at Fort Campbell. But one day, our country will be no more. With all the might and all the strength of America, we can't fathom that one day it will dissolve. The greatest superpower that the world has ever known was a, a little place called Rome. And in the first century, the time of Jesus, Rome had conquered about one-fourth of the world's population. They were the strongest, most important empire in world history. Their total area was over three million square miles that they had subjugated to the will of Caesar. And yet, after a few hundred years, it all came crumbling apart. And now Rome is just another city. When Jesus appears before Pontius Pilate in the Roman governor's palace, he's at the mercy of Rome. Pontius Pilate was the most powerful man for thousands of miles around. Jesus' life is completely in the hands of the Roman governor there in Jerusalem. It's during the, the, the Pax Romana, historians call it, the most, the most important and powerful time in Rome's empire. They were at the peak of their, their prominence in the world. Any uprisings that occurred throughout the empire were quickly squashed and put down ruthlessly. So here comes Jesus of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, by all accounts a self-taught homeless rabbi who was a carpenter's son from Galilee 
Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And of his 12 followers, not, not a mega church by any stretch, one has betrayed him and nine have run away to hide. And just as Rob mentioned last week, it seems as if everyone's trying to take matters into their own hands, and yet Jesus remains sovereign. I love the, the commentary on John by Kent Hughes. He says, it's not Jesus who's on trial before Pilate here. It's Pilate who's on trial before the sovereign Lord. This, this account, you know, in my Bible, this, the, the subheading says Jesus before Pilate. But really, it's Pilate before Jesus, isn't it? It's not that Pilate is holding court over Jesus. Jesus is holding court over Pilate, over the Jewish authorities, over Rome, over this world and the powers that be. Christ is rendering his judgment and he's making provision for all who would come to him by grace through faith. In verse 28 here, you know, dawn is breaking the, the, the morning after the Last Supper. It's Friday morning and Jesus is, is led bound. They're still scared about what he could do. So they, they bind him and they lead him to the palace, the governor's headquarters, an impressive building. And it's ironic here that the, the Jewish authorities won't go in because they're scared of defiling themselves for the Passover. They're about to execute their Messiah, the anointed one who was promised all throughout their scriptures. And yet they're only concerned with having a stress-free Passover. You know, the holidays can be a stressful time, but we can miss out on the main things, can't we? What's most important. So Pilate goes out to them. They won't come in, so he goes to the courtyard in verse 29, and he asks, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answer him, if this man were not doing evil, we would never have delivered him to you in the first place. I'm not an attorney, Leslie, but that, that sounds like a pretty weak case to me. Not a lot of evidence there. Trust us, Your Honor. He's guilty. Take our word for it. They know that pagan Pilate, pagan Pontius Pilate, try to say that three times fast, he doesn't care about their, their theological qualms that this man has betrayed their sacred text by claiming to be one with the Father. Pilate doesn't care about those theological issues. They just want Pilate to do them a solid and kill this guy who's become a real threat to their established power and way of life in, Rome, in Jerusalem. Look at verse 31. Pilate doesn't want to get involved in Jewish affairs. He says to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, Jesus is even in control of what kind of death he's going to die. If the Jewish authorities had come to Pilate and said, yeah, we're just going to stone him, Pilate would have been like, cool, go for it. That's fine, because that fits your law. If you want to stone somebody, do it. But no, Caiaphas, the high priest, he wanted Jesus hung on a cross and crucified. Why? He wanted him humiliated publicly, and most importantly, he wanted him theologically cursed and condemned. 
Deuteronomy 21-23, a, a, a passage that in the Torah that they all would have been familiar with, says that a hanged man, a man who's been hanged, is cursed by God. If that's true, then Caiaphas had this great plan to prove once and for all that Jesus could not be the Messiah that he claimed to be, but he was surely an imposter. There's no way the anointed one of God could be hanged on a tree because he would be cursed then by God. But Caiaphas must not have known that Jesus had already predicted the kind of death that he was going to die when he came to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In verse 14, where he said, just as Moses was lifted up from the earth, that he lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He knew that he would be nailed to a crossbeam and lifted high for the world to see. And Pilate doesn't get it either. Look at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? In all four gospels here, the you is emphatic. Are you the king of the Jews? Really? You? You're all homeless and tatters? You're a king? Look at Jesus' answer. Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? He turns the tables on him. It's like he's saying, what do you really know about me? You just look at my clothes and you judge me. Remember, Jesus is not defending himself. He doesn't have to. He's sovereign. He's going after Pilate's heart. What do you really know about me, Pilate? He's, he's probing deeper. He's confronting Pilate with the truth of the gospel, the reality of what God is doing in the world. But Pilate is resistant, of course. In verse 35, he blusters, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Here we have the heart of the matter. The physical appearances of the, the whole passion narrative are, are not indicative of the spiritual realities that are taking place. Jesus is not some kind of physical, political, earthly king. He's the king of something much greater than that. He's a spiritual king. He doesn't rule by material force and political will. Jesus is Lord of all. So now Pilate is in a pickle. If, if Jesus had said, yes, I am, in fact, a political king of the Jews, and I plan on taking over Rome, then that would have been an easy decision for Pilate to execute him. Go kill him. But Jesus doesn't claim to be a physical king. What is, it, what is a spiritual king guilty of? What can Pilate convict him of? What laws is he breaking? Jesus is not some worldly rebel trying to get some people to fight together against the powers that be. He's making all things new. I love Leslie's prayer talking about the seasons changing, knowing that the leaves are going to fall, trees look dead, but in the spring, new life comes. God's promise of Easter. God's sent his own son on a rescue mission. He's come to usher in a whole new era 
of existence in reality to establish a kingdom that shall never pass away. In verse 37, we see Christ's kingly confession. Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Anyone who gets the spiritual realities of what's really going on in this world listens to me. You know, we're doing a new series on Wednesday nights at our midweek worship service, 6.30 in the chapel. I encourage you to come. We have a great uh, worship team. I've, I've really enjoyed our times of, of singing together. And then I'm teaching through the parables of Jesus, and we're calling it the kingdom. Because Jesus uses parables to, to talk about what his kingdom is like, to describe what the kingdom of God is. And the economy of the kingdom of God is so different from what we're used to in our economy, in our culture. In God's economy, there is no scarcity of resources of grace. His grace is limitless. His glory is without end. His goodness never runs out. But the kingdom of this world will pass away. All the authorities and political powers that be are only temporary. The kingdom of God, though, is worth selling all you have in order to obtain it. It's like finding treasure in a random field and being able to buy that field or finding a pearl of great price that's the greatest pearl ever found. But it's only for people who recognize the spiritual truth of what's going on, the reality that's deeper than the physical appearances of this world. So Pilate asks in verse 38, what is the reality? What is truth? Some commentators think he was joking or maybe just being sarcastic or flippant, but I think he's honestly searching. You know, we read in, in Matthew how his wife had a, a, a premonition to have nothing to do with this man, she says, because something spiritually is going on here. Pilate's not a dumb person. He's risen high in the ranks of Rome's authority. I think he's really wrestling with what truth really is. He's achieved all this power for himself, and through these ruthless tactics, he's risen the ranks to be governor of all of Judea, but is he satisfied? His pagan faith has let him down time and time again. He longs for something more. He aches in his bones to be forgiven of his sins, to be restored to the one who made him. But he doesn't wait for an answer, like Jim said. He doesn't know where to begin looking for the truth. So he has a brainwave and has an idea that might end this whole disaster. Each year during Passover, the Jews would ask for the liberation of one prisoner, a symbolic act to remember how the Lord liberated his people from bondage in Egypt. So Pilate thought he could just give the people a simple choice between this guy who He's kind of ragged and homeless, but he seems like a good guy. He's not really a threat to anybody. Or Barabbas. Barabbas was a notorious criminal. The other gospels tell us that he was a murderer. He was a notorious thief. But even in this choice that Pilate gives the people, Jesus is sovereign. It, it, there's some divine poetry going on here. Do you know what Barabbas means? It means son of a 
father, Abbas meaning father, Bar meaning son, son of a father. And what's ironic deeply here is that the crowd chooses this son of a father instead of Jesus, the son of the father. The world is blind to the truth. The world chases after a thief and a murderer and a liar when the Son of God is there for them and all they have to do is accept it. <clears throat> what is truth? What is reality? We read it a minute ago. Jesus tells us what is the truth. He is. He says, <clears throat> I am the way. <clears throat> Excuse me. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What is the truth? Christ is sovereign, Lord of all, righteous judge of all, and he sits in judgment over Pilate, over Rome, over the United States, over you, and over me. His judgment falls on all those who go after Barabbas, who go after this world. <clears throat> but he also comes to rescue. He comes to show us the truth of a good, good father who created us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. He gives us the right to all who believe on him to become children of God. Just as Jesus died in the place of Barabbas, you know, Barabbas was the only person that Jesus physically died for, but he also died spiritually for you and for me. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table to remember the truth, the reality that when we are on trial before Jesus, just like Pilate was, just like Rome was, all we have to do <clears throat> to be justified before God is to accept his free gift of grace and be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Let us pray. Our Lord God, as we come to this table now, we come only by your grace. We come knowing that nothing in ourselves is good or worthy of, of your provision that you have given us at this table, except for what you have given us through your Lord through your Son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the, the banquet that you prepare before us in the presence of our enemies, the banquet of grace. God, I pray that we would be re reminded that chasing after Barabbas, chasing after this world, only leads to disappointment, only leads to more unsatisfactory means. Help us to remember that true flourishing, true life, abundant life is found in you and you alone. God, you promised to dwell in us. I pray that as we accept the sacraments before us today, that you would impart to us your spirit, your presence more and more. That these crackers and that this juice would be more than just a symbol today, that they would be a means of grace, that we would remember your sacrifice on a cross, knowing that you took our place just as you took 
Barabbas' place. God, I pray that you would impart a new love for you, a new appreciation for the gospel as we leave this place today, that we would follow the kingdom of heaven over the kingdom of this world more and more as we live our lives day by day. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.